Welcome to the Switchboard Podcast. Switchboard is a one-stop resource hub for refugee service providers in the United States, funded by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. We provide resources, trainings, communities of practice, and programmatic assistance for programs funded by the ORR. My name is Selena Mate, and I will be your host. Today, I will be talking with Rob Callis and Medina Masumi, two of Switchboard's training officers with focuses on community integration and cultural awareness, respectively. Both Rob and Medina have extensive backgrounds in the classroom, working to welcome newcomer youth into the school system. Welcome, Rob and Medina. Thank you for joining today. Would you care to give us a quick rundown of your background with newcomer youth? My name is Rob Callis. I am a training officer, like Selena said. My focus is on community integration, so looking at the barriers that newcomers are facing when integrating into the community, but also what are the barriers within the community that do not promote integration successfully. So my history working with youth goes back to teaching overseas. I did a program called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps in Tanzania, where I was an educator for writing. Uh, And that was when I fell in love sort of with education as a practice and as a career and a, a life path. So Uh, When I came back to the U.S. after that time, I was looking for jobs that kept me working with youth, kept me working with uh, the education sector, and working at a refugee resettlement agency in Durham, North Carolina, where I live currently, was where I ended up. And that felt like the best fit, where I managed a youth services program that was catering to the needs of refugee and immigrant youth in the Durham public school system. So I worked there for about almost four years, had a really great time, and then transitioned to my uh, position here at Switchboard. So happy to be here. Let me kick it over to Medina. Thank you, Rob and Selena. Um, My name is Medina Masumi, and I'm a training officer with Switchboard. Um, And my focus with Switchboard really comes in the area of uh, cultural awareness and cultural humility. And as part of that, uh, what I have focused on also with some of my Uh, projects are uh, working to make sure that students are feeling uh, open and welcome in their classroom environments and that it's a culturally and sort of safe environment for them. So I'm excited to be here with you guys today. A little bit about my background with newcomer youth comes really from my own personal and lived experiences growing up as the daughter of Afghan refugees. A lot of my personal childhood experiences are memories of my family members and I sort of learning to navigate life in a brand new country and a new environment and um, in an environment that's completely foreign to my family. So learning to find a, like a balance between the Eastern and the Western cultures uh, was a big part of my upbringing. And so in addition also to my personal experiences, I worked for uh, over 13 years as a professional school counselor for Fairfax County Public Schools. And I spent a lot of my time working in elementary schools uh, with marginalized populations, which obviously included a lot of students who were new to the country. Thank you both for sharing that. And a little fun fact um, about Rob's program as well in Durham is that I used to work with Rob alongside him with the Youth Mentorship Program. And so I'm so excited to have both of you here today and to share your wealth of knowledge personal experience and lived experience. Um, Let's dive in. What are some of the core stressors that newcomer youth face when entering the U.S. school system? I think one thing that's so important to really point out with newcomer youth coming into new school systems and a new environment is, first of all, that they have so many strengths and that they are so resilient. Uh, That's one of the things that's really drew me to working in schools with larger migrant populations. It really helped me 
sort of to keep grounded throughout my career as a school counselor because I would witness how they would respond to all these stressors. But I think one of the main things that I worked on with students was really making sure that they feel, felt welcome and accepted by their peers. And we can already assume that students and their families are facing lots of barriers when it comes to language or possibly financial barriers or housing. But one of the things that really stresses children out when they are in school is that feeling, that potential feeling of social isolation. Because when they're in school, it's something that they're facing alone. Their family is not with them. They don't have that support. So it's so important to make sure that that school community becomes their support. So it's uh, really, really essential for schools to have good programming that helps students feel connected. Yeah, Medina, I super agree with this idea of creating welcoming spaces in terms of, you know, where youth can feel where they're seen and where they have connection with other people who are sort of seeing them in their struggles and those sorts of things. I think there are a lot of ways to, you know, in answering the, the question of what are the core stressors, there are a lot of ways to break down some of those stressors and they're complex and they're compounded. Uh, you have your resettlement stresses of just integrating in general, you have your cultural adjustment stressors, you have this trauma stress because of all the migratory trauma that youth are experiencing and internalizing and in an incredibly important developmental stage for them as well. But I think one of the things that has really been sticking with me in terms of thinking of core stresses for youth actually comes from a resource that someone in our newcomer education and youth services community of practice shared. Uh, it was a resource of the findings from a conference of a study that was conducted with 25 refugee youth and where folks asked them what, in their opinions, what the most stressful parts of their integration were. And so I really appreciated that sort of youth-centered, student-centered approach. And the highest reported stressors among those youth in that conversation were English language learning, educational success, cultural adjustment, and discrimination and bullying, sort of as that last one. And I think those sort of hit on facets of all those other, you know, big jargony words, but in a way that feels really poor and central and authentic to the newcomer youth's experience. And I think that hits on some of the things that Medina was talking about too, sort of having to reconcile the different kinds of cultural experiences and education experiences as well. Rob, I'm glad you brought up the point about bullying. That's actually something that I was thinking of as well, because a lot of times we hear stories uh, through some of the technical assistance we provide at Switchboard of newly arrived Afghans, for example, that are being resettled sometimes into communities that have uh, little ethnic diversity. And so as a result, they are faced with bullying because uh, other students might not understand their culture or some of you know, the differences that they have. So I think that being having that awareness as a school district of who your population is um, and making sure that there's programs in place that celebrate diversity is so important too. Thanks for sharing that source, Rob. And it's so interesting. And I definitely like to highlight the youth input, the youth voice when doing any programs. You know, when I talk about youth mentorship, it's always like, the best way to relate to your kids is to ask them what they want to do. The best way to build this program is to ask them what they want to do. And so I love, I love sources like this. So thank you so much for sharing that and those thoughts kind of shifting to how we can change the system. What are some ways that you have helped alleviate some of the stress from newcomer families in your own programs and in your work? 
I think as a school counselor, uh, one of the things that I've always focused on is making sure to get to know my students, right? Taking that time to establish trust, first of all, and build that relationship. And that can be in really small ways. Like as a counselor, a lot of times we have lunch with the students or run small groups and reaching out to the families to make sure that they have relevant resources that they might need to help them also feel uh, that they are part of their child's learning and that they're feeling empowered because they're a partner. And you definitely, as a school, want to find ways to partner with families to make sure that they uh, also feel involved. Uh, but it's really a village approach, Selena. And I think in terms of helping to alleviate some of the core stressors, you have to involve everyone, right? Administrators, parent liaisons have to really be part of that, teachers as well. I know for me personally, growing up as a you know child of refugees, I struggled so much in my first year because my parents didn't know certain uh, tools or ways of how the school system worked, even things like the, the public library being free. That was something that they had to learn along the way, or the fact that sometimes there's programs that are free tutoring after school to help you learn to read, or the concept of a parent-teacher conference was something that was new to my family, that it's just more of a proactive check-in of here's how your child is progressing, not your child is necessarily in trouble. So really just working through some of those differences and nuances and making sure that parents feel empowered, whether you're a counselor or a teacher or an administrator is so important. And obviously teachers, they, they're really on that forefront, right? They spend the most time with the students. So taking time for them is important to build some type of a strength-based approach with their students. And one thing that's amazing about children that I always love is they're so, they, they can see the world through a different lens and they know who's really invested in them genuinely and who's not, right? So as a teacher, if you just take a little bit of time to see a strength in a child or, or notice, you know, something that they did well, I think that goes such a long way because it really allows them to be seen and heard. And so really everybody sort of plays a little smart, small part to make sure to help that they can alleviate some of those stressors. And people like as a counselor, one of the special things that I got to do is really work with all of those people to help that I would contact you know, the teachers and the parents and the school social workers, and really you're sort of like a bridge that helps connect everybody, so. One of the best ways, you know, one of the first ways I can think of for alleviating some of the stresses comes from that initial arrival period and during, you know, those first 90 days of arrival in the reception and placement program. And so that's normally when uh, our youth services department would do enrollments at school, and something we always reflected on is that, you know, the, the enrollment form and registration forms for the public schools in our area, we could honestly, by the time we had been doing them, we could do them in probably 10 minutes if we really needed to, just by ourselves. But what we thought was really important was spending time going to the family's home, sitting with them, and actually going through the application and registration process with them. And doing so with an interpreter who can speak the same language and comes from the same cultural background or context as that family. So by taking that time, it, you know, it might take more like an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, depending on how many kids there are. But in that process, it would give space for families to ask questions about, you know, when we get to the grade placement question, that's a great time to provide some cultural orientation and sort of education system orientation and say, 
here's how the education system looks in the United States. We'd also accompany them for school entry. So the first day of school is a big one. Uh, and it's often really hard for the parents, for the students. So we would offer support on that first day, make sure they met all the right people, provide an interpreter for those first meetings with the teachers. Uh, and that would help those students sort of start off strong, knowing that they had that sort of support that Medina was talking about, knowing that everyone was there to support them. A last thing I'll share about reducing and mitigating the stress of those core stressors uh, is about building cross-cultural community within the school. So often in different public school districts based on affordable housing, so on and so forth, there will be a couple schools where you'll have quite a few refugee learners. And in those schools, one of the most successful things that we did was provide these sort of after school spaces for refugees and other newcomers to gather. And we'd have our interpreters there to help out with the different languages. But some of the best parts were, were watching the kids from different countries, from different cultures, from really different sort of migratory backgrounds, uh, coming together and connecting over their different but shared experiences. And I think that was really helpful for those kids to feel less alone, to know that they were not the only kids in that school who arrived to the United States in a really challenging and different way than their peers, uh, to know that then that way, the next days after after school, they might see their friends in the hallway and uh, they don't have to be like, hey, you're a refugee too, but they might say, hey, there's a part of you that sees a part of me, and that's really valuable. Also, Rob, I, the after-school programming is so important because it also supports families in an indirect way because you have families who are sometimes working one, two, three jobs to get by, and so it really provides a safe environment where their child is thriving. So there's really uh, multiple layers of support there. Absolutely. And think that makes me think of another layer is that, you know, these after school programs were often what I would say is, you know, obviously we care about the education and the academic growth, but what I'm really caring about are the social and emotional bonds that are happening and that sort of growth. So, you know, we'd have time dedicated towards finishing their homework assignments that they wanted to finish before getting home. But then we'd also have activities where we would read through stories that had more of like a social emotional component and different morals or opportunities to talk about some of those stressors in ways that felt uh, approachable and accessible for these youth as well. So it was a space for them to be like, uh, yeah, like, it's really hard for me to do this. Like, isn't it weird that you have to do that in the school system? And I didn't really know how this worked. And I was scared to ask to use the bathroom, things like that, where they can sort of be able to voice those things without feeling afraid of how that'll be received, because there are, you know, at least four or five other kids in the room who might share the same experience. And even to add another layer to that, I'm thinking about, we had a similar programming at the school I worked with, is that in the evenings that there would be certain events to bring all the families back in, in that safe space. And they would either do a diversity day where everybody would bring in a meal from their country or a day to watch a movie together in the cafeteria. And all you, so you'd bring in the family as well into that space where children are connecting socially and then then you have the families who are able to connect as well. So a lot of, a lot can be done with that within that safe, you know, environment of a of a school or a community center. How can school systems integrate student focused practices in their day-to-day -day operations to help out these newcomer families? I love this question and I love to sort of brag about the Durham Public Schools in this space. 
Uh, we worked really, really closely with the Durham Public Schools and we are partnered really directly with the English as a Second Language Department, which is now the English Language Learner Services Department. We think back to when we were first approached by the Durham Public Schools. They identified this need of wanting to address the issue of language justice in the school system and the lack of culturally responsive, appropriate services provided for refugee and other immigrant learners. Basically, anyone who wasn't speaking English at home growing up, they were trying to improve their services. So the head of ESL shared a really important story that really stuck with us in terms of trying to illustrate the need. She said there was a family who came to the Durham public school system and the kid came for his first day of school uh, and he was sent home like within that morning and the family wasn't really told why they were just called and said you need to come pick up your student he's broken a rule they did not receive really good context on why uh, later on they were told it was because the student had brought a knife to school now the family was really upset and they went back to the school and they said, well, how else was he supposed to sharpen his pencils if he didn't have the knife? And so that was a really interesting sort of cultural dissonance moment of that family not having received perhaps information around what is appropriate and what's not appropriate for the schools, but also the school to not have necessarily the culturally responsive mindset of saying that Maybe this kid isn't bringing this as a weapon. Maybe this has some sort of cultural significance or has some sort of like social significance or is just a difference in uh, a view of that sort of thing. So that disconnect led to that kid missing some formative initial days of school and also sort of created that sort of dissonant relationship with education in the first place. He didn't feel welcomed. He was sent home for something that he thought was important for his education. So that was kind of why ESL came to us at that time. And they said, we need to do better by our refugee and immigrant learners. So uh, the Durham Public Schools has done a lot in the past couple of years to improve their services. They introduced a multilingual resource center where they have interpreters available in most of the common uh, immigrant and newcomer languages that are in the Durham Public School system. They partnered with us at our agency to provide multilingual services. We partner directly even in funding, they had some extra funding for giving to our agency to, you know, they acknowledged that we had the capacity and the institutional knowledge. And they said, let's leverage that. And let's bring in folks from the communities that we're serving right into the school. So we had, like I said, a fleet of bilingual assistants. So folks who were sort of interpreters, but were there to sort of act as cultural brokers, and to also provide in school and after school support. So through the like the growth of those sorts of partnerships and things like that, I think of one of the one of our partner schools being a really, really great model for this. You know, they relied on us a lot at first, but after a while they became a lot more culturally responsive. So before we would say, oh, we noticed there's something on the calendar, it might be good to send some bilingual assistance, but it got to the point later on where they no longer were asking us and they were saying, hey, we've already got these interpreters lined up, they're coming. Do you have any ideas or any other considerations? Is there anything you can do to help us get kids to the schools, including with their families uh, for you know a multicultural night or a back to school night or something like that? So they, during that time of partnership, were able to move from a space of you know not really knowing how to meet the needs to better anticipating the needs and knowing where to ask for help. 
And I think that was where I think like looking at where the school-based and community-based approach is really important is saying that these agencies, we don't want to be the end-all be-all for all these families, but we do want to be a resource that's empowering the school system to meet the needs in and of itself. Rob, thanks for sharing your story. I feel listening to you, it's your example is sort of like a program-wide systemic approach a school district use. And some of the experiences I wanted to share are sort of things that I've seen in my 13 years of working through different schools within Fairfax County uh, in terms of sort of day-to-day -day practices where you can help support newcomer students. And one of the things that always uh, a program that I loved uh, was a school that I had where they had a student ambassador program. And it really goes back to what we were talking about earlier of finding ways to empower students to support each other. So sort of that peer mentoring support. And in this program, they would select students to for a, uh, I think it was a, a month long type of a deal where they would help new students, newcomer students come in and integrate to the school. So they were sitting with them at lunch. They would show them how to buy their lunch, how to go through the lunch line. They would hang out with them at recess. They would, uh, you know, sort of be a support system within the school and within the classroom for that child. And the empowering part of this program is that then once that student, that newly arrived student, a month or two would pass by and let's say another student would come, then they would get to go be that person, that um, student ambassador for the new child. So it really, uh, it's sort of a program that kept on empowering and giving students the opportunity to help and support each other. And another with that, uh, in addition to that, I think programs like you know mentoring programs where even if you can get individuals who come in from outside the school to provide uh, support uh, to students, but it's even more empowering when you have staff members who are in the school who can buddy up and mentor with newly arrived students to spend some uh, time with them, even if it's something once a month or once every couple of weeks to build those relationships and really make sure that they are feeling that sense of belonging and safety that they all deserve. Uh, so really programming within schools are so important too. And even in one district and Fairfax County is one of the largest school districts in the country, you'll see that every school has different programs running throughout, but, but having some type of programming to support the daily uh, sort of day-to-day uh, -day focused practices is very important. Can you share one of your favorite stories from your time working with your newcomer students? I have a favorite story that I can share. And Selena, mine is not about uh, sort of my experiences as a counselor working with a student. It's actually from my own personal experience from growing up. I shared earlier that uh, I was the daughter of Afghan refugees, even, even though I was born into in this country, I was born in the United States, it was really difficult to sort of navigate between the two cultures. But uh, back when I was in second grade, I won't mention what year that was, it was a really long time ago, many decades ago, uh, there was a student who arrived from Afghanistan. Uh, her name was Malika, and she was orphaned from the war and she was brought to the U.S., and sponsored by an American family. And she had a metal prosthetic leg because she had lost one of her legs from a landmine. And they put her in my class in second grade because we spoke the same language and we're both from the same country. 
And at the time I was really struggling with my own identity and really trying to fit in as an Afghan American in a predominantly white school. So I watched her come in. She didn't know the language and she made friends faster than I did. And it's not, it's because she wasn't trying so hard sort of to fit in. She, she was herself. And I, I felt that story has stayed with me throughout a lot of my life because in that year in, in second grade, uh, there was a moment before she came in the class and the teacher was going around asking everyone what their background is or their nationality or what city or state are you from? And when she got to me, I didn't say that I was from Afghanistan. I was just not, I didn't feel comfortable or safe in my environment to, to say it. And she came in and she just had a different attitude. And I guess from, I learned an important lesson from her and it was really about self-acceptance and staying true to yourself. And I think it goes back to the point I made at the beginning of this podcast is that newcomers are so resilient and we just have to give them the opportunity and the space to feel welcome and so that they can thrive in that environment. It was harder for me as someone who was born in this country with that third culture identity to fit in um, than it was for her, someone who had experienced so much trauma, loss. Um, and she just smiled and persevered through it. And it's some, it's just stayed with me my entire life. And I often think back and I hope that she's continuing to thrive and as successful as she was in second grade. That's really sweet, Medina. I really appreciate hearing that. And shout out to Melika. Uh, amazing for her authenticity. It's, I, I just can't imagine it. I think it's with all the pressures to you know, as a youth in general, forget about if you come from a different cultural context to fit in. I think that that is incredible. And I'm really glad you had a model like that in your life. Yeah, I'm thinking of ask, you know, when you ask about favorite stories, my mind just goes to like 400 different moments. I think I felt really affirmed in the work that I was doing with newcomer youth because Sure, yes, it's really challenging, but there are so many great moments of resilience and grace and and those sorts of things that I'm always so moved by. I think some of the ones that come to mind the most are from our after-school programming. And Selena, I think you know this one well. Uh, we had rooms based on age groups. And in each room, there would be kids from different countries, from different languages, some age groups might have, you know, more Arabic speakers in one room, uh, more Pashto speakers in another. But in our fifth grade room, it was a really cool mix. We had two kids from Afghanistan. We had two from Central Africa. Uh, and then we also had all of a sudden our first arrival in a, a long time. And this was back in, I think, 2019, 2020. Uh, especially we weren't seeing a lot of newcomers from Syria at that time. And we had a fifth grader from Syria come. And we were so excited. We're like, we have a new student. This is so great. And I was a little worried at first. I was like, oh, maybe she's going to feel a little isolated in this room. Like if she's the only Arabic speaker and the rest of our Arabic speakers are a lot younger, she might not connect with them in quite the same way. But I was totally like all of those sorts of doubts and fears and concerns were dashed immediately because that room rallied around this newcomer student. They would always check in as soon as she walked in the room, they'd be like, let's check on her homework. Let's see if she needs any help. 
I, I would walk in the room sometimes and see them rallying around this this newcomer and I'd be like, hey guys, this is so cool of you to do this. This is so nice. I know you guys have your homework too, but it's really inspiring to see you supporting her. And, you know, they'd say, you know, just really of themselves. They're like, we were like her. And, you know, and it, it almost sounds like cheesy, but it was so pure in that way. And just seeing them sort of mobilize on her behalf was amazing. So where the sort of like, a really big moment for her with with us was there was a time uh, Selena and I were walking into the school and the student comes running down the hallway and well walking very quickly I should say and she's accompanied by two of the other kids from the fifth grade room and she you know not perfect in perfect English some grammatical things here and there told us that her younger brother wouldn't be at after school that day because he had a doctor's appointment and Selena and I barely even listened because we were like, oh my gosh, that was an incredible like sentence. Good for you. You were able to like communicate something really clearly, confidently, so on and so forth. And all the kids around her were there sort of being her little cheerleaders. And it was so great. Um, so that was sort of what, one of those moments where I was like, that's the kind of thing that I wish we could measure in these programs is what does that self-advocacy look like? What does building community look like? How do you measure those sorts of things? Because those were the real things that I felt were successes from that program. It's part of what she did, but then how sort of, like you said, everybody else rallied around her and then you guys were there as a support, but that's very sweet. And it's the kind of thing that otherwise might be made fun of, you know, the fact that she couldn't, convey that her brother was going to a doctor's appointment because she forgot a verb, a helping verb or something like that. Um, but we were sitting there just being like, way to go. Like, that's so impressive. And, I, you know, that's my thing about language, especially for language lear English language learners, is if you get your idea across, if I understand you, that's language, that's exchange. And that's something to celebrate, especially with, with these kids who are, you know, within her first year of arrival was able to make those sorts of sentences thanks to the support from her her peers. Rob, as you were as you were talking, I was reminded of one of my favorite moments. And one day I was like, let's do a service opportunity that's not the typical. So we had we'd take them to the food pantry. There were a lot of different service aspects in the program, but one came to mind and I, I went to our resettlement manager and was like, hey, what what families do we have arriving? Uh, can we set up one of the new apartments? And I think she was a little hesitant at first because I have a bunch of 15, 16 year old students that were about to build some furniture. Uh, but <laughs> she she let us and she's like, yeah, I mean, we have this, we have this one apartment that needs to be set up in next so many weekends. And I took a lot of my students, there were probably about five or six of them throughout the day. Uh, and I remember this moment when we were eating dinner, I think it was, and sitting in this near empty apartment with a couple of students looked up and they were, they were like, Selena, somebody did this for us. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Family did this for you. And like, no way. Wow. It just, it kind of just dawned on me that, that somebody had done this for us before we arrived as well. And now they're doing it for a new family. And they were just so excited to be able to feel that sense of agency, I think, of like completing the circle almost like, oh, well, I, I can serve my community in this way now too. So that that full circle of like, well, we were at this point once, so let's help her out. We were here once, let's help this family out. Is it's I, I know it, as just a teacher in general, that's a really cool moment when your student leans over and is like, hey, let me help you with your math. And it's like, oh, cool. 
it's it's heartwarming for sure. And you know, Selena, they're never gonna forget that. That moments like that as a child, as an adolescent, it I've had those moments as with my own personal experiences, and I remember it, and it still uh sort of affects me and and influences me to this day as an adult with the decisions I make and it's very empowering it stays with children just thinking of that story Selena also makes me you know want to brag a little bit but more on behalf of a particular client and a couple clients who have since followed him is uh, something we started in my last position was a youth fellowship program and so sort of that same idea of those uh, mentorship program clients participating in an apartment setup our agency asked the question of, you know, what it, what are ways that we can involve former clients or current clients in our work more? And we also have the need for hiring interns all the time. So we said, what if we create a fellowship program to make an internship more accessible for a former mentorship program client? And so we piloted it a couple of years ago and it was a smashing success. It was awesome. And uh, now that former client is a current staff member at our agency as a, as a youth fellow, and he'll be finishing his second year. And he's someone who, you know, I served as a mentor for, and we stay really close. And now I get to sit with him and talk to him about, you know, now that he's had this youth fellowship experience, he's really interested in continuing his involvement and career with refugee resettlement in the long term. So we're having conversations about what kind of majors and what kind of classes will be helpful in college to help him continue on that track. And so it's really cool to be able to say, you know, he is now able to provide support that he had received when he was a client. And he, who better to inform that process than someone who went through that process himself? What is one line, like one sentence? Moving on to our last question. Somebody on their first day working in a youth program, whether it's in the school like you were Medina or in a program like you were Rob, what's one line that you would give them? Don't take anything personally that a child tells you. That's a good one. (laughs) Working with teenagers, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, the one sentence, especially coming from a role where I was managing a lot of folks who were younger is to check in with yourself often and ask yourself repeatedly, what is essential? I worked with a lot of caseworkers who, when working with youth, would internalize a lot and maybe take things personally like Medina was talking about. And it was really important to say, you know, what is the value that we're adding and how can we do this sustainably? So I know it's it's sort of almost trite at this point, but it's so essential to be aware of your boundaries. Uh, and to acknowledge that while youth who are running youth programs are really well situated because they are closest to those experiences, uh, it's also really easy to sort of internalize those experiences as well and to take on more than you should. So uh, I would say, you know, it's it's not the most exciting thing, but check out what's in your grant, check out what you've actually promised to provide and use that as a piece of accountability to ensure that you're staying within your scope and within your own personal boundaries so that you can continue to be uh, helpful and valuable and of service to your clients. This is great advice from both of you. Thank you so much for sharing. I cannot stress enough. Listeners, if there's anyone out there that 
does want to have a conversation like this with any of our switchboard team, please reach out, um, submit a technical assistance request, and we can navigate that with you, whether that's walking through a program period with you or just having a simple conversation about boundaries and case management and implementing some of these programs with your youth. And so reach out, please. That's what we're here for. In addition to those ways that you can get connected to Switchboard, Rob and Medina, would you mind sharing any of the upcoming webinars or resources that we have coming out? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to take this on and share about some of the really cool opportunities we've had and that are coming up. So last month in March, we had an updated version of our federal student aid webinar, which provided some updates around federal student aid eligibility for Ukrainians, Afghans, Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, just trying to be more expansive in terms of which newcomers are eligible for which kinds of student aid. So definitely check that out on our website with our subject matter expert, Lindsay Dussard, as well as folks from the Office of Post-Secondary Education providing guidance as well. Uh, I also wanna plug that we have an ongoing community of practice, which is a social learning space for folks who work in newcomer education and youth services. So that's anyone who's funded by Refugee School Impact or Refugee Youth Mentorship Grants, uh, most welcome to join for that. Uh, that happens on the second Wednesday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Last thing I'll plug, and this is coming up at the end of May, we'll be having a webinar on the building of supportive mentoring relationships with refugee students. So stay tuned for that. We'll be announcing it very soon. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having Thanks. us here. Thanks so much, Selena. Great talking to you guys about this. If you're a resettlement service provider and are looking for new ways to improve your current programs or build new programs, please do not hesitate to reach out to the Switchboard team via our website. Please check out our resource library for all of the latest resources on refugee resettlement. We will publish one episode each month throughout the year. Thank you for tuning in. See you next month on the Switchboard podcast.